Hi, so welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, we have uh, the absolute pleasure of having a repeat performer here on Behind the Knife, Dr. Taylor Ryle, who is the interim chair of the Department of Surgery and the chief of the Division of General Surgery, Surgical Oncology, and she's a professor of surgery at the University of Arizona in the Arizona Cancer Center. Taylor, thanks so much for coming back on Behind the Knife. It's terrific to be here. So when we talked to you last, it was at Academic Surgical, and we only got you for about five to ten minutes, and I, we were obviously at that stage just looking for a time when everything would come together where we could have you back on, and you've had a lot that has come up uh, the uh, last several months, but why don't you take our listeners back a little bit and tell them a little bit about kind of where you grew up, where you're born, kind of where you trained, and how came to the point where you are now the interim chair at Arizona? Okay. Um, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in Old Bridge, New Jersey, and I stayed in New Jersey through college. I went to Rutgers University, and after college, I went to Johns Hopkins for medical school. Um, I always I always joke about the story because I had applied to multiple medical schools. Some I didn't get in, uh, some I didn't get interviews, and I always joke about it. I say I had to go to Hopkins because I didn't get in anywhere else. Um, but the day that I had gone up for that interview, I just had a, an amazing interview um, with the dean at the time. Uh, we just hit it off, and I remember driving home from that interview and calling my mom and telling her, if I get in there, that's where I want to go. And about two weeks later, I got in there, and I spent the next uh, 13 years at Hopkins. So I did my medical school and then I completed uh, my surgical training there as well as the ACS year, which is the assistant chief of service year, which was essentially at the time a pancreatic surgery fellowship where I operated uh, with Cameron pretty much every day for about uh, nine months of the, of the year. Sorry, I was just wondering, you know, what, uh, what your initial motivation for, you know, thinking back to your, your initial motivations growing up to become a surgeon, to become a surgeon oncologist, and also what was it like to study, um, you know, that intimately every day for nine months with John Cameron? What was that experience like? So, honestly, when I went to medical school, I didn't really intend to be a surgeon. I didn't, uh, I certainly didn't intend not to be a surgeon, um, but I was really open just in terms of what I wanted to do. My my first rotation was OBGYN, and actually that was not a good experience for me for a lot of different reasons, uh, primarily because I, um, the way that medical school was formatted then, I didn't really have a lot of the clinical pieces in place, and I didn't have a lot of guidance, and, um, and uh, I, I really, at first question, you know, did I, did I go into the right field? You know, I, I really, did I, is medicine wrong for me? So what was interesting was that was followed by my pediatric rotation, which, you know, it was the exact opposite experience. The people were nice. I had a lot of guidance. I was really able to thrive and do what people wanted. And I thought I was going to do pediatrics. And then I did surgery. And I just fell in love uh, with surgery. At Hopkins, you see really an unusual cross-section of things. So I think, you know, by the end of my surgical training, I probably did more whipples than I did appendectomies, uh, hmm. which is not usual. So I think in part, I fell in love with surgical oncology or pancreas and hepatobiliary surgery because I was exposed to that a tremendous amount. And I think it's also nice to be able to do the gamut of general surgery, but then to be an expert in, you know, a specific area where not everybody else can do it. And pancreas is always challenging. Even now when I do a pancreas case, you learn something every time. Uh, it's never the same. And I like that about it. 
and training with Cameron was an amazing experience. In fact, you know, I really look fondly on my whole time at Hopkins and I wouldn't trade my training there for anything. Um, it was intense. Uh, during that training year, we also covered basically all of the trauma as attending. So we were junior faculty, like an instructor in surgery. So we would be up all night with traumas and then operate with Cameron all the next day. Um, wow. But just, he was very, very particular, had a way you like to do it, uh, really held you to a, a high standard in doing that and then taking care of patients postoperatively. Incredible learning experience. Taylor, when did you finish your training? I finished my training in 2005, including that uh, fellowship year in, in pancreas surgery. So the reason I want to bring this up to our listeners, just so everybody's out there, finished in 2005. Currently she is, and I, the numbers are probably a little bit skewed, probably towards the low end, but just for all of the listeners out there, finished in 2005, co-author of over 120 peer-reviewed publications, 20 book chapters, serves on the executive council of the SUS, Board of Trustees for the Society for Surgery for the Elementary Contract, and uh, American College of Surgery Board of Governors. She's also the president-elect coming up for the Society of University Surgeons on the several editorial boards, annals, Journal of GI Surgery, Surgery, numbers of awards for clinical and research achievements, mentoring students, residents, faculty, listed as a top doctor by anyone in a number of publications, including U.S. News and World's Report, and you are not even 12 years out of your fellowship. That's impressive. I think, you know, a lot of that is um, having been very well supported and oftentimes being in the right place. It, it's not just being in the right place. It's sort of making the most of those opportunities when they're presented to you. But I've had a tremendous amount of support along the way from my mentors. Uh, and, again, you know, my, my first job coming out of training was an incredibly supportive situation, and I felt supported my entire 10 years that I was at University of Texas Medical Branch. And as I transitioned in this job in Arizona, again, I found myself in a very supportive environment. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up and just to kind of give a feel for uh, everybody out there is that that takes, uh, there's no question that all of us couldn't do what we're doing at any level and have any level of success or even failures if uh, we didn't uh, have a great support structure, but we're going to jump right into our dissection of the day here. And what we're going to talk about is a little bit about, you know, some some of the struggles uh, and some of the hard times and some of the things that we don't necessarily talk about a lot as surgeons, especially somebody like yourself who is so incredibly accomplished. I mean, incredibly accomplished at such a, a relatively junior age. And um, and going to talk a little bit about your role in terms of executive coaching, mindfulness, self-awareness, and kind of overcoming burnout. And so, first of all, can you take the listeners through a little bit more, uh, kind of tell us a little bit of background about your story. So you're rolling along, you're seemingly from the outside looking in, just killing it in every way, shape, or form. And what's what's going on? Walk our listeners through in terms of kind of the stresses and some of the other behind-the-scenes things that, that may come up that a lot of our listeners may be experienced or may try to hopefully avoid after listening to this podcast. Well, it's really interesting, Scott, because I look good on paper. You know, you, you described how I looked on paper, you know, but that um, that isn't really all of, of who I am. And I think one of the dangers in academic surgery certainly is that there is a very narrow definition of success and there is a very defined career path that you move along. You know, so you're, you're going along and you're sort of checking off all the boxes, right? You know, you're publishing papers, you're a member of all the right surgical societies, and um, 
And so while I looked really good on paper, I was actually really unhappy um, and really burned out for probably three years. And, and again, it's not that my environment wasn't supportive. I, I was always well supported at UTMB. Um, but I had just sort of lost sight of my why, you know, like I, I couldn't remember why I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I felt like I wasn't good at anything I did. I felt like I wasn't a good surgeon, a good investigator, a good mentor, a good teacher, a good wife, a good athlete, you know, because I didn't really have time to, to do those things well. And and talk to my mentors and they say, well, you know, you don't have to do any of the things you don't want to do. But honestly, at that point, I, I, I didn't like doing any of it. And I had, we all go into medicine at some level because we want to help people. And certainly I went to medical school thinking that, and, and I just really began to hate people um, and, and just be so angry and stressed, you know, every time my phone rang and I felt like I couldn't be the compassionate physician that I had trained to be. Um, and that was a really scary place to be. You sort of look at it and you think, you know, what am I if I'm not a surgeon? You know, what else can I do? And you feel, and I felt really trapped in that place. And that's probably now Scott about three or four years ago. How did you pick yourself up from that? Because I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, and a lot of people either just leave medicine or they just, you know, trudge through it. They gut it out. How did you end up going the direction you went? Well, I think for a while I trudged through it until I really couldn't anymore. And, you know, had I had another plan, you know, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure. My husband's actually uh, retired. He, he takes care of me. I'm a full-time job, but you know, you have financial pressures. There's not a lot of other things that you could easily jump into that provide the same lifestyle that a career in medicine provides. And, and, and there's stigma attached to it, you know, so I felt, I felt like there weren't a lot of safe places where I could talk about this and not be judged. Um, and so what I did, and this is sort of by dumb luck, but I, I found a sports psychologist in Houston, you know, I was an athlete and part of my part of my struggles had been related to uh, surgery I had on my back, which kind of took away my ability to run and do things that I really loved. And, and so I thought maybe that's a good route to go because I didn't want to have to, you know, report anything strange on medical license and, and things like that. So I met this sports psychologist in Houston. His name is Robert Andrews. And he, he works with high potential athletes and he teaches them to function optimally or at their very best through mindfulness and self-awareness. And it was a really um, serendipitous meeting. You know, I joke about it because I said, you know, looking back after that first time I met with Robert, I wasn't sure why he wasn't like, you know what, there's somebody else who can help you. <laughs> it's not me, but it just was like I met him at the right time. And I worked with Robert for probably six months or a year. And it, it really took that long to kind of shift to this place of believing that I could create the life that I wanted instead of the one I had and believing that in this situation that I had choices, you know, they may not have been easy choices. They may not all have been good choices, but that, you know, really a lot of my unhappiness was, I, I, I let myself be trapped there and I could make those changes if I really wanted to. And, and so as I worked with him, I, I thought, 
well, gosh, you know, I'd really love to work with other surgeons who feel the way I do. And I enrolled in the professional coaching course. And that was a, a really interesting experience because as I was working with Robert, I sort of got what he was saying, but I couldn't really operationalize it. And going through the executive coaching program not only taught me to coach, but it also um, helped me create a lot of self-awareness and emotional intelligence. And as I went through that process, I was able to start operationalizing abstract ideas like mindfulness and, um, and you know, self-awareness. Like, how do I actually do that? And So I'm going to interrupt you right here. Sure. I want to interrupt you here because I want to I want to kind of focus on a couple of things that you said. Surgeons oftentimes and doctors oftentimes have been accused of essentially being having an intrinsic innate ability to point out problems in others and then not turn the have the emotional intelligence, the self awareness to kind of look at themselves and they they don't realize that you're telling somebody to lower their cholesterol and yet they're 30 pounds overweight, you know, we do in primary care or we're telling everybody else to you know take care of yourself, but in the same thing saying. You know, why don't you work harder? Why don't you scared of burnout? So looking back on it, a little bit along the lines of the emotional intelligence and the self-awareness, were there early signs or something when you look back on yourself that you could have picked up and said, whoa, you know, uh, I, I could have caught it here. Or I could have done that. Or did you recognize it at the time and just said, yeah, I'm in a funk. I'll kind of get out of it. What, what are some of those early warning signs? What are those, some of those things that people can look for? I mean, I think those early warning signs are, you know, just that um, fatigue, you know, those days when I would wake up and just feel like, you know, I can't do this for another day. And, and there were cycles of that, you know, so I would feel that way. And then something good would happen, right? You know, I would get a paper accepted, or I would you know, get a grant or, or whatever that was, or I'd go on vacation, and that could sort of sustain me, you know, but sort of recognizing that cycle. And, you know, I think the other thing is really having awareness and recognition of when you're going down a path, you know, when I'm doing things because I have to and not because I choose to do them. So a good example is um, like in my research, you know, I, I, I had these grants and what was really ironic was that the stuff that I really loved and the projects that I were interested in weren't funded and the stuff that I was funded, you know, was, I wasn't really interested in. <laughs> Um, and it sort of creates a thing. So now I have to, you know, do these grants and, and go down this path where it's not really where I'm excited and passionate. And then I, it takes away from doing the things I really love or, um, or limits my ability to do them. And, and so just being aware of, I think having awareness around what really does make you happy, having awareness around, you know, when you're doing things that affect you personally. And I, I think it's really, you made a really good point about medicine and surgical culture, especially. We don't really create an environment that encourages us to take care of ourselves. Um, you know, so that, that's not so much about self-awareness, but, you know, being able to kind of create that environment, which is a real priority for me and my department and my division. But, you know, really being aware when you're unhappy and and, and having the um, having the presence of mind to say it doesn't have to be like this, you know, that um, being happy and being successful don't have to be mutually exclusive. Well, listening to you talk, like through there, you know, I'm just, it, I th it sounds like I listen to a lot of my colleagues, and that's the way people talk. They, you know, they're just getting through the day. It's like, oh, God, I'm exhausted. 
if I could just get to this next, you know, I got this meeting coming up. I'm looking forward to that. Or I, I have some vacation getting up, you know, you know, coming up. Um, you know, if I can just get to that, I think people are, a lot of people are sustaining themselves by those brief periods of respite and then just kind of getting through the day when it comes to kind of the day-to-day job um, of being a surgeon. So when you talk about mindfulness, you know, and that is a tool, what do you mean by that? It's, you know, so for me, um, it, it's really being aware of, of of how I'm showing up, you know, of how the way that I'm showing up is affecting the results that I generate every day. Um, so I'll, I'll say this, you know, so what's really interesting is nothing in my environment has changed over the last three years in the sense that the job I have right now is probably three times more stressful than the job I had four years ago. Mm-hmm. Only my ability to respond to it has changed. Um, so when I think about mindfulness and self-awareness, I just think of, I, I think of it as this ability to kind of step out of the situation and to, you know, observe myself in the situation in a way that's really not judgmental, you know, that's really like, um, from a place of curiosity. So when I go into a meeting or I have some interaction that doesn't go the way I want, and trust me, you know, I, I still have those every day, but when I go into those things, you know, being able kind of in that moment or soon thereafter to be like, well, why didn't that go well? You know, what about that made me uncomfortable? You know, how might I have done that differently? When I can approach, you know, my own behavior and responses and other people's uh, behavior and responses with that curiosity, I learn a lot more and I'm able to manage that stress in a completely different way. Taylor, if we, if we also kind of take that to the next level, you found yourself in a situation where you were able to talk to kind of the sports um, route. What are the resources do you think, uh, you know, you went from there, I want to do get into kind of your next stages of where you went into, but what are the other resources and is there any kind of information out there that's uh, what's the scope of this problem? Is this an increasing problem? Is it one of these things that is kind of hidden down and we obviously don't talk as much about, but um, wh- where where did you kind of find that person and what is there anybody else you could have maybe gone to? Uh, certainly, you know, I mean, obviously what I do now is executive coaching and, and I, I didn't really even understand what that was. Um, and and that's functionally what Robert did for me, although he's a sports psychologist, you know, he functioned in my life as a coach. Um, so I work with a coach now all the time. And uh, I actually love being coached because it, it, it's really easy, Scott, for me to like coach you. So, you know, you come to me with a problem and I can help you step back in that situation and see it differently and create awareness around how you're showing up. But sometimes when you're in that situation personally, it's hard to see that. Um, so, you know, having that person uh, there to constantly um, bounce things off and say, how should I approach this? This is really bothering me, uh, you know, helping you understand that. Um, uh, you know, you, you had sort of mentioned athletes, and that's come up now a couple of times. But when I think about well-being, I really like the concept of the surgeon athlete, right? Because we really are elite athletes. We have a highly specialized skill that other people can't do. And when you think about well-being from the standpoint of everything we need to do to sort of optimize our performance, I think a lot of surgeons will, will appreciate that. You know, so athletes don't 
diet and exercise, they train and fuel, right? And they, they have coaches. So, you know, I, I think there's a real role for that uh, in surgery. Now, certainly if people are, are really feeling burned out, they're really feeling depressed, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists are absolutely appropriate uh, to help people in those settings and those things um, coexist. So I think burnout coexists with depression, um, all those tools. I don't know if I answered your question completely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, just a note to the listeners, obviously uh, you have never seen Jason play basketball saying that surgeons are athletes. That's a whole different topic of conversation, but uh, your point is well taken. I, so how did you then transition to not only becoming the pupil, but then you wanted to take it to the next level and become actually the, the teacher, the mentor, to kind of take it to that next level where you can not only help yourself, but in the process help others? Well, it was interesting. When I when I took the coaching course, my, my actual initial thoughts got was to get out of medicine, you know, to, to really coach surgeons who, who felt like I did. And as, as my perspective changed and my ability to respond to my environment uh, changed, I saw that I had a real opportunity because, because I look good on paper, you know, because I have credibility, I thought that I had a real opportunity to, um, to really bring together all those skills, my skills as a surgeon, the coaching, and to really change the way that we train surgeons and develop faculty. And I, I came to University of Arizona with that idea. I came at a really fragile time. So it was really right as I made this transition and I was going through the coach training. Um, so that all happened simultaneously. And it was really uh, an interesting experiment because I got to just come to Arizona and be this person, you know, to, um, and to use the, to be coached, to use those coaching skills and do that. And the difference in the way that I interact with people and the results that I generate is remarkable. Not that I wasn't successful before I, I guess I was, but um, I see a huge difference. So it's been interesting. And so that's how I kind of came to where I am. And I, I was worried, you know, I was worried when I came to Arizona that I would get sucked back into that feeling, you know, that I would get back in that job with just all that pressure every day and be right back where I was, but the exact opposite happened. And I just, you know, more days than not, you know, my job just fires me up instead of burns me to the ground. And it's an ongoing process. What kind of, like, I'm curious to know what kind of initial response you got from all this, because, you know, the culture of surgery is, what are you talking about? Just suck it up and deal with it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and especially from some of the older surgeons, like we never had, you know, they never had mindfulness or wellness. Um, you know, there's this kind of this misconception that, you know, young surgeons and millennials, and you know, all that goes into that, um, you know, uh, are people, are surgeons, are physicians just getting weaker? Is the job changing? Or has this always been a problem? It's just been swept under the rug. I suspect it's always been a problem. I, I suspect we have more awareness around it now. Um, I think you ask an interesting question about how it was received. And I have to tell you that for a year, you know, I wasn't willing to talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. this, uh, these ideas were really important to me. Um, they were really fragile, you know, because as you're sort of changing and learning those things, it's easy to get sucked back into the way that you think and the way that your life has been for a really long time. And you know, I didn't want to, even people I trusted, you know, I didn't want to tell them 
the direction I wanted to go in, what I was, what I was doing, because I didn't want them to stomp all over it, you know. Um, so I was really protective of it. And I told only a handful of people even what I was doing. Uh, when, I, when I came to Arizona, Dr. Neumeier, who was the chair at the time, was, was really interested and excited. And she's one of the first people I told about it, you know, and told her I'd really like to bring those ideas to the University of Arizona. And she was very excited about that. And then probably the first time I spoke about it in public was maybe a year ago at the Academic Surgical Congress. And, and since then, I've had multiple invitations to go and, and, and talk about it. And what's really remarkable is that actually the response is um, overwhelmingly good. Uh, there's probably people who, <laughs> who are rolling their eyes who don't, um, who just don't come talk to me. But, you know, every time I talk to people about this, after the talk, there's people come up and be like, yeah, you know, I feel that way. I can identify with that. And it was interesting. I gave a talk in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago. One of the surgeons, uh, older surgeon that I've just known forever, you know, he said, you know, he stood up at the end. He said, I've heard you give many talks, you know, throughout your career. He's like, this is the best talk that you've ever given. And, you know, he sort of viewed me as on this path to burnout in, in that success that I was enjoying and, and for him, that was really refreshing. And it's, it's very good for me to hear those kind of responses. And I feel like in going out and telling that story that I make a difference. So you find yourself and in a have... position now where you are a chairman of a, a major department. And you have the opportunity to implement some of these ideas with, obviously, your staff. And you go from there. So how do you balance, especially in light of hey, we are in a time where RVUs and clinical productivity and even times for academics are, are waning and there's need for funding and all the things that can cause similar type of stresses to kind of get you there in addition to the fact that, hey, you're a surgery and a, a mother, a, a father, a husband, wife, friend, all the other things. What type of things are you implementing on your faculty and for your residents to kind of avoid this or to help cope with this? What are you doing? So for my department, I, I really have this culture first approach. So we're really building an intentional culture. Um, I really like to sort of create uh, teams of surgeons who work together, who work interchangeably, uh, really changing a paradigm that I was used to, which is, you know, it's your patient. You know, you take care of that patient all the time. You know, if they ask you and you got a million things to do, well, then you just add that on and, and, and even amongst the you know, the pancreas surgeons I work with, or the uh, the other surgeons on the surgical oncology service, we we share weekend rounds. We really work as a team to enable everybody to have at least some kind of lifestyle. That's not to say we don't have high expectations for patient care. Uh, we absolutely do. Um, I think you know once you have that culture in place, the rest of the stuff becomes easier. So addressing the challenges, you know, in sustaining our academic mission in this era of um, work RVUs. I think for me and for my faculty, it's, it really helps me to sort of identify for each of my faculty what makes them feel valued and where we can best use their skill set in the department and recognizing that every single person in my department brings a different strength um, and none is more valuable than another. Uh, and, and getting those people in the right position. Um, sometimes it takes me a while to figure it out. You know, I have a junior faculty, and I I don't quite know what they want. But when I get them in that right position, 
they just become engaged and they have what I call discretional energy. You know, they have all this energy now to go ahead and, and do things above and beyond what is asked because, because I have them engaged and in the right spot. For my residents, um, I started in July uh, being in resiliency program. I use a model called energy leadership that helps teach emotional intelligence. But we have, uh, I meet with them every month for about a two-hour session, and we, we do all kinds of interactive things. So um, next week I'm having my Pilates instructor come and really talk about, you know, postural tips and exercises for surgeons to help with, you know, pain in the operating room and ergonomic problems and, and fatigue from standing for a long time. Um, we do uh, stress reduction techniques. Um, we have sessions where um, – we're starting to model something called Schwartz rounds, which is really um, presenting a case from the standpoint of like the psychosocial aspects and how we feel about a complication rather than, you know, what caused the complication itself. And I really work to normalize some of the feelings that we're talking about. So I'm the first one to sort of get up at M&M and talk about, you know, how I felt about a complication and, it, and it's okay to, to do that. And I, I think, normalizing those feelings is really one of the first steps and then people aren't so afraid to kind of step up and be like, Hey, you know, I do feel really down or this has really been a struggle for me. Um, so the, the program's new for me. I'm, I'm figuring out the curriculum as I go along. You know, I have, I have a defined curriculum that I'm working off of, but some things work and some things don't. And I'm really learning to adjust that. Uh, but I really, even in the time I've been there, I've seen a shift in the, culture and environment that really supports the kind of place that I want to work and I think other people will want to work. So I was just to say for, you know, let's say for our listeners out there, who, you know, this is really resonating with them. You know, this is, they're feeling these things. Uh, they're, you know, just sustaining themselves or feeling burnout. What's your advice? What's your, what are the first steps they should take? Where can they go? How do they seek help? In, in my institution, um, you know, so, so every single person knows that they can come and find me. Um, so, so I make that sort of really clear up front because I, and I want that to be sort of universally true. Um, I, at least for the residents, I kind of have my eye on people who I think I might be worried about and provide those people additional support. Uh, we have coaches in the department. Um, so any faculty member that comes and is struggling has access to, uh, coaching, I'm happy to help support that. Um, but again, it's sort of creating this environment and culture where people feel uh, comfortable uh, saying that and taking advantage of those resources. We would like to make it more global throughout the university. There's challenges in doing that. Yeah, and for those listeners out there who can uh, want to get a little bit more to this, and we encourage you, one of the places you can go, you can look at a lot of different, you know, executive coaches or or, you know, life coaches, uh, Taylor has a website, HTTP, HTTP, TaylorYourSuccessCoaching.com. That's TaylorYourSuccessCoaching.com. I encourage everybody to take a peek at it, and you can also follow on Twitter at Taylor Ryall. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-R-I-A-L-L. Um, all right, before we finish up the dissection of the day, Taylor, I really, this is this is fascinating stuff, and I think it's more fascinating than everything. Is it just seems to me like this has been going on for as long as surgery's been going on, but this is the first time that it, people are willing to uh, to talk about it. And I think that for both Jason and I, it it, it kind of touches a little bit further home because 
in the military with combat deployments and things like that, you know, these called soldier's heart and PTSD and all these different ones. And it's, it really hits home because a lot of the people who experience high stressful jobs, it doesn't necessarily have to be just medicine, but um, in some of these bravado type cultures, uh, people don't talk about it. And it's, so it's, it's fascinating that this is coming out. Um, any final thoughts on this or your, your next steps, things you, the things you're looking forward to doing, um, or just kind of an overall global picture for our listeners? You know, I'm just really, um, I'm really excited about the opportunity to step into this interim chair role and to really see if I can create the kind of surgical culture I want. And, and I believe that I can maintain high performance. And I actually think, you know, you could achieve better performance if I have a department of people who are engaged uh, and happy and supported. Um, so I'm really interested to see if I can do that in my role in national societies, I want to make these resources more available to surgeons. The Society of University Surgeons, uh, I think our niche is really in leadership development and, you know, and how do surgeons find coaches? Like, I wouldn't have known how to do it. Um, So providing resources or, you know, a network of coaches that will work with surgeons, you know, at some discounted rate, that's a benefit for our membership or, or things like that. But really, get these resources out there, um, again, normalize uh, these feelings so that, you know, people um, can respond differently and they can address them if they're feeling that way. Well, I think that's fascinating. I also think it's fascinating from the fact that if you would, one of the early things we talked about is um, you felt you looked good on paper, but nobody knows exactly what's going on behind the scenes. So I, I just think that's incredible self-insight, and it's an incredible journey that you've gone. And I'm, I'm just very curious as to how long we're going to have to keep that interim tag on you before we get to the real thing and just knock that guy off and just go forward, <laughs> having you be the chair of that department and go from there. So that, that'll be the next steps. But we're going to make a transition right now into uh, tips and tricks, and Jay's going to present you a scenario. Yeah, so this is a segment called, you know, Tips and Tricks. These are things our experts can offer our listeners to help them get through those uh, sticky situations. So, you know, the situation is you're resecting a mesenteric mass. You know, it doesn't really matter what it is, be it a desmoid or a carcinoid or a gist, whatever. Uh, but you get into some pesky, you know, some some significant bleeding down at the root of the mesentery. Can you walk us through what your thought process is, how you, you know, expose, find the anatomy, you know, control the bleeding, um, and do the repair? Yeah, um, you know, so the the most common bleeding I get into in the root of the mesentery is when I'm doing a pancreatectomy and sort of dissecting around that uncinate process. So for me, even before um, dissecting into those areas, I really think about uh, control and exposure. So, for instance, if I'm doing a pancreatectomy before I'm getting down into the uncinate process right around the root of the mesentery and the first jejunal branches of the SMA, I make sure that I have exposure um, anteriorly. You know, so, <clears throat> so, like, if I'm doing a pancreatectomy, I really try not to address those vessels until I have control anteriorly in that I have the pancreatic neck divided, I can see the SMA and SMV, and that helps me uh, prevent a bleeding trouble there and at a time where I can't expose it as well. Um, one of the things I've been doing lately is uh, using the ligature to control some of those vessels. It can be very difficult to tie in that area. When I first saw somebody use the ligature like along the SMA, I thought, wow, that's really crazy. But actually 
Um, it does provide better bleeding control. And Whipple specifically, uh, right at the root of the mesentery, it can be really hard to see the bleeding, either from the patient's right or the patient's left. Um, so I'm very, very careful to make sure that uh, as I am pulling on the tumor, you know, so if you're pulling on it from the right or pulling on it from the left, you're able to kind of pull those vessels over and expose them. But once you remove that tumor, they retract underneath. Um, so really making sure that I have adequate control before I take out that tumor, before I lose my leverage and uh, where I'm able to kind of pull and expose things. Um, but you want to have good exposure. You want to not, um, not take big bites of things when things are bleeding and you feel panicky. Arterial bleeding, much, more, much easier to control uh, than bleeding from the SMV. Uh, the root of the mesentery, um, but again, it's it's just exposure. It's um, the other. I guess the other thing I would say is, uh, if I'm really struggling or I'm even anticipating struggling, I will call in a second surgeon um, who can help me expose. Because oftentimes I'm operating with a resident, and my residents are very good. Um, but when we get in a situation where things are really bleeding or it's a really dangerous situation, what I find is that my resident um, maybe can't sew it uh, and can't expose for me to sew it. Um, so oftentimes just having a second set of hands uh, who can, experienced hands who can help you in those situations is um, absolutely critical. And I never hesitate to call somebody else in the operating room. I think I've seen that a lot at my institution where people don't, I don't know if it's a pride thing, but they don't want to call somebody else in, but I never hesitate. Uh, I never hesitate to do that for an opinion uh, and or to help when I'm in a difficult situation. Yeah, one other quick question along these same lines is, what do you do about that kind of expanding hematoma that comes up the mesentery? I know I've heard of people just saying, you know, I, I grab it with my hands if it's an open case and kind of compress on that. But do you have any tricks in terms of that? And then the follow-up question is, how do you make a determination regarding the, um, uh, the ability to have what, am, what are you going to do with it? Is that going to be a vascular compromise on that section of bowel or anything like that? What do you do about that situation? I think it depends where in the mesentery it is. You know, so if you're peripherally along the mesentery, Scott, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll hold pressure on it. And then you, you can fairly well um, oversew almost any of those things without causing real compromise in the bowel as the blood supply is so redundant in those areas. When I'm down by the root of the mesentery, uh, that's a lot trickier, and you just have to be a lot more judicial about, you know, not, again, you know, just placing big stitches and really compromising the blood flow to the entire intestine or narrowing that SMA uh, or causing uh, thrombosis, uh, et cetera. So, yes, you know, I will try to control things manually until I can get the appropriate help, the appropriate exposure, the appropriate sutures on the field, um, and usually you can do that. Um, and once I'm there, you know, just really being careful and very, very judicious and in, in taking stitches and anything in that area so that you're not putting it. But you can't let that uh, hematoma continue to expand or you will compromise the vasculature in that way also. Okay. Well, I think that uh, it's time for now for our uh, into our segment called Final Five. And this is the five fun, easy questions that we ask all of our guests, just in an effort to kind of get you know, get to know you and for our listeners to get to know get to know you a little bit better. So number one on our Final Five is, A, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if you do, what's on your iPod? I, I will listen to music. Uh, 
or I won't. Uh, so it doesn't really matter to me either way. Uh, so usually I let the people in the room choose the music. Um, I'm not very musically inclined, so I like most anything. Uh, so oftentimes I let my team and the OR pick if, they, if they're interested in music. Is there anything you say? Absolutely Number not. Um, no, I, you know, nobody suggested anything that I said absolutely not, but probably I wouldn't do well with, you know, really heavy metal or rap music, but uh, I like uh, classic rock and uh, I like country. <laughs> I grew up in the 80s. So. Do, you have any, do you have any interesting or hidden hobbies, talents, or interests outside of the operating room? I, I love to be active, um, you know, I love to run and ride my bike and swim, and I love to uh, hike uh, in Tucson. It's just the most amazing place to hike, uh, just beautiful scenery and uh, beautiful mountains. I get to hike the Grand Canyon for the first time this year, um, and I like to uh, ballroom dance. I met my husband ballroom dancing. Yes. What's your best ballroom dance? Probably waltz or cha-cha. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah, and for the listeners out who don't understand, Taylor is a triathlete. She does like to dominate in terms of that as well. So I, uh, I failed to mention that earlier in the case. All right. So number three, um, any you know favorite trips or vacations or places you've been? Um, so we love Hawaii. Um, I could go there a million times. Uh, my our favorite place to vacation used to be in Arizona. Actually, we went on our honeymoon in uh, Scottsdale at a resort called the Boulders. And that was my first exposure to the desert. And I thought, well, if I could ever live in the desert, I would. Uh, but now I actually live in my favorite place. So, so I don't have to vacation here anymore. Number four, if, what would you be doing if you weren't doing medicine? Gosh. I don't know, you know, probably if if I left medicine, I would stay tied to medicine in terms of, uh, you know, coaching and interacting with uh, surgeons. But right now, there's nothing I want to do besides medicine. Did you have a plan if you weren't going to do medicine or didn't go into it back in the day? What was your safety plan? I don't know. You know, uh, what would I do if I didn't do medicine? It's a really tough question, and that was part of my problem when I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was like, what else could I possibly do? <laughs> uh, I, I love math. You know, I would probably be a, a, a decent engineer or things like that, but it's uh, it, it doesn't excite me. All right. Last question, number five. So if you could go back in time and meet yourself on your very first day of your surgical internship, what, uh, what one piece of advice would you give yourself? Uh, to keep my eye on the ball, you know, to really – Remember why I went into medicine, and and when I wake up on days and I'm not feeling that way, to kind of step back and, and reassess and, you know, find that a lot sooner than I did this time. And I think the other part is, I had mentioned this earlier, but really approach my life with a little more curiosity as opposed to judgment uh, and really understand why things go well for me one day and they don't go well for me the next. Um, so that I can learn from both situations. Well, Taylor, we can't thank you so much for joining us. Uh, congratulations on your new position. And more importantly, we really appreciate the opportunity for you to come in 
and share a really personal side and a side that we don't talk about much or and, and define how that personal journey of yours has really kind of transformed not only your life, but hopefully the lives of many people that you touch. I, I still remember when we were sitting in Vegas together at the SUS meeting and I said to you, how's the things going? And we kind of went and talked and I was like, holy cow. And I know it made me think like, God, if somebody like this who was doing so much and I, I mean, I couldn't believe all the things you were doing were feeling uh, kind of the, some of the struggles that you were going through. I, I can imagine that a large majority of our listenership is doing well. So thanks so much for coming on BTK and joining us and kind of walking us through this journey. Thanks, guys. It struck me to hear in Las Vegas because it was exactly two years ago that I had talked to you about it. Uh, so uh, as I was back at the ASC in Las Vegas this year, it really struck me how far I had come in, in that short time period. Well, thanks again. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Mm-hmm.